You are listening to the Hebein Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hebein Podcast. I am Dr. Josh, and with me today is Dr. Joel Baden, who is professor of Hebrew Bible at Yale Divinity School. Dr. Baden earned an MA in Northwest Semitics from the Oriental Institute in 2002 and his PhD in Hebrew Bible from Harvard in 2007. Dr. Baden is a Pentateuchal specialist, and he has written extensively on issues surrounding the formation of the first books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, perhaps most notably his 2012 monograph, The Composition of the Pentateuch, Renewing the Documentary Hypothesis, published by Yale University Press. The link is in the description. This incredibly complex and highly debated topic will be the focus of our discussion today. So, Dr. Baden, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Would you just take a second and uh, explain what is meant by the Pentateuch or the Torah? I'm sure most people know, but just in case. Um, And then in particular, why the issue of its authorship is so important to the discussion. Sure. Is the Pentateuch or the Torah quite simply is the first five books uh, of the Bible. Uh, So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, uh, you know, those have been a sort of coherent corpus for ever since, since it came into existence. It has been a separate corpus within, within the Bible. And, you know, the, it's the story from creation in Genesis to the death of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy and contained within it are all of the laws in the Bible. Right? So all of the laws that uh, God gives to Moses to give to Israel are contained in, in those books, specifically in the last four, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy. It's long been the core of the, the Hebrew Bible, at least. Uh, it's obviously central to Judaism, but also clearly central in, uh, in, in certain times and places in ancient Israel as well. So the question of its, why its authorship is at stake, right, it's got a fairly long history, that question. <laughs> you know, already in the early post-biblical period, in the period of the called the sort of the classical rabbis in, in Judaism. So the first five centuries, five, six centuries of the common era, it was assumed and stated explicitly that Moses wrote the, the books, right? The first five books, which are known as, right? Like the five books of Moses. Uh, and that sort of is a part of the Talmud, the collection of Jewish law, where they go through who wrote all the books, right? Moses wrote his books, Joshua wrote his book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this assumption that Moses wrote the Torah, so it goes back 2,000 years, maybe probably a, li- a little bit more, although we don't have like quite as direct evidence for that statement. But there's reasons to think that Moses might not have written, we can start with all of it, right? So there's like the history of the development of the question is in the, you know, even already in that, in that uh, Jewish text in the Talmud, they say, right, Moses wrote all of his, there's a conversation, wrote, wrote all of his stuff except the part of where he dies, right, at the end of Deuteronomy, right, where it says Moses died and then all of a sudden his burial, maybe Moses didn't write. There's discussion. Maybe he wrote it because, like, he knew it was going to happen in a prophetic sense, but maybe Joshua wrote it. Okay, so, like, we're already, like, maybe in the mid, uh, mid- medieval period, uh, some Jewish commentators, specifically one named Abraham Ibn Ezra in France, said, yeah, there's like actually a bunch of things that it doesn't look great for Moses to have written. So things that make it look like this text was written 
from a perspective later than Moses is. So for example, Deuteronomy begins by saying, this is what Moses said to the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan. But like if it says on the other side of the Jordan, that it must have been written from inside Canaan where Moses never got. So how, that doesn't quite make sense, right? Or some historical references that don't quite match up. My favorite verse that could not, that people were like, that doesn't make sense for Moses to have said, is where it says in, the, in, in Numbers 12, uh, it says, now Moses was the most humble man on earth, which I always thought is the funniest thing for Moses to have potentially written. But like, you can see why people would say, eh, maybe Moses didn't write that. Anyway, so the question of maybe Moses didn't write all of it was already, already came up in like the 11th, 12th century. But in the Enlightenment, this became sort of the standard accepted position. Spinoza and Hobbes and Locke and all these you know, authors who sort of said, Moses doesn't work as the, as the author for a whole bunch of different reasons. And at the same time, people started saying, it's not just that it couldn't be Moses. It's that it can't just be any one person. And that has nothing to do with like the timing of it. It has everything to do with, and this is really the core of what we're here to talk about, has to do with the fact that the Pentateuch as it stands is not just repetitive, but contradictory within itself in ways that are almost unimaginable for a single author to have, have written, right? in ways that are like, conflict with, it, with itself. So you don't know what the truth is. Uh, so, I mean, and it's riddled with this, right? And it starts in Genesis, in, in the two creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2, and it goes all the way through the entire text. Constant things, little things. What's the name of Moses' father-in-law? I don't know. It says like two different things. Slightly larger things, like where was the tent of meeting? Was it in the middle of the camp or was it outside the camp? Right? Like there's different texts that, that say different things. And then there's, you know, like, I don't know. It depends on your perspective. Maybe slightly larger things, like how long did the flood last? Right? Like we all know it lasted 40 days and nights, except for the verses that say it lasted 150 days and nights. Right. So like there's tensions even within stories, there's tensions across stories. And then there are, um, you know, there are quite big ones like uh, in the specifically in the Jewish tradition. Right. What do you do with laws that are contradictory? And there are mm. plenty of contradictory laws there. Also, it says, you know, one law in Leviticus and a different one in Deuteronomy. And so the the question at the heart of the conversation here is, what explanations can we give for the fact that this piece of literature looks this way? Right? We could try and argue for a sort of single author model, but you'd be pretty hard pressed to come up with a sensible model in which somebody wrote a text that like fails to communicate on a sort of basic level of both plot and sort of agreement in, in law, right? Assuming they wanted to tell me something about these laws, if I don't know which one to follow, I'm in trouble. So how is it that the literature looks this way, right? So I, have a, I have a literary problem, right? I have a text that reads weird. And so what is the possible solution? And a bunch of possibilities were, have been offered over the centuries. Uh, it's actually, it was a bunch of little small pieces that got put together. And so like a bunch of things of different origins that got smushed together and that's why it looks this way. Or, you know, it was one thing and then it expanded and expanded and expanded and that's why it looks this way. And the model to which, you know, I tend to adhere that has been around for now, you know, 150, 170 years is one that envisions independent documents that have been interwoven, 
So when I get repetitions and I get contradictions, it's because I'm reading what were originally two versions of the same story that have been interwoven. And that's weird, but it like answers a lot of the questions and, and makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the examples that you give to sort of go back a little bit, you, you talk in the beginning of the book uh, about Genesis 37 and the Midianites and the Ishmaelites and you, which one is it? And uh, could you maybe just talk about that? Because I think that's a really key example, not just because of how blatant, I think, or obvious the, the problem is, but because Genesis 37, as you show, separates so nicely. And, and yet people have given, and you go through them almost in a painstaking process in the book, showing everybody's attempt to try to reconcile who took Joseph down to Egypt. Yeah, I mean, I open with that one because it's because I think it's, it's I think it is pretty smack you in the face, right? So we're in Genesis thirty-seven, which is the first chapter of the Joseph story, and you know the brothers are conspiring to kill Joseph and throw him into the pit, you know, and then right they look up and they say, oh, here comes some like, uh, you know, here comes some Ishmaelites, right? some some Ishmaelites passing by, and Judah says, hey, let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Right. So far, we're pretty much following like the plot of the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So, right, like if you're familiar, you're with me. Um, they say, "Hey, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites," and his brothers say, "Yeah, that's a good idea." And the next verse says, "When Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who brought Joseph to Egypt." So it sounds like. The brothers were like, hey, let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And almost while they were talking, some Midianites came by and had the same idea and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who then brought Joseph to Egypt, which is very weird. But what's worse is the very end of the chapter says the Midianites sold him in Egypt. So like I've got Midian, I've got brothers who want to sell Joseph to Ishmaelites. I have Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. I have Midianites who come by and pull him out of a pit and sell him to into Egypt. Like, what is happening there, right? It's the kind of thing where if you're not reading for, like, plot, right? If you're not reading for plot and you're reading because you're interested in themes or you're interested in, like, moral messaging, this isn't the most important thing. But if you're asking what is happening in the story, there's no obvious answer to what's happening in the story right there. And those are the kinds of places where I think we really need to pay attention, right? Who could ever have written a story like that? And the, you know, the answer is nobody did because when you start untangling, okay, what if like, so the Ishmaelites and the Midianites can't go together. So it turns out, right, like you end up with two distinct, th complete stories in this chapter. One in which Judah says, hey, let's throw, let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And they do. And the Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt. And one in which Joseph is left to die in the pit and Reuben is planning on going back and saving him. Before Reuben can get there, Midianites pass by, grab him, and they take him down. They're two perfectly good stories. I'm not going to take time reading them to you, but it's in the book. <laughs> right? So like, there's, there's these two perfectly good stories, and suddenly all of the problems with the text as a story are resolved. Mm. And these are not problems that, you know, one of the things that you often hear is, well, you're just making up problems to solve. Right? not making up this problem. And you can tell that not only because I think it's pretty on the surface, but because everybody who reads, this is what you said, everybody who reads this chapter and 
and uh, does you know interpretation of it comes up with some fanciful explanation for what's going on here. You know, oh, well, the brothers sold them to the Ishmaelites, who sold them to the Midianites, who sold them to a third, like another group, or you know, there's different. There's all sorts of solutions. But when you're trying, when there's lots of solutions, that means there's a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the contradictions in the Pentateuch, we're not the first ones to see them. We in the, you know, 20th, 21st century, with our post-enlightenment, you know, sort of senses of how stories should be, we're not the first to see any of these. Early readers in the early post-biblical period, especially the rabbis, were like all over all of this. Um, and they pointed to all of these things and they came up with explanations for them. But the, again, the fact they needed to explain something indicates that there was a problem. Right? It's not that we have different senses of what's going on in the text. We're all equally confused. We just have different notions of how to answer. Right? They come at it with a uh, sense of, well, we are starting from the knowledge that this text was written by Moses and mm -hmm. is you know, a single thing. So now I have to explain it in that light. And in the Enlightenment period, we're coming at it without that presupposition. Let's not assume it was written by Moses. Is there maybe another explanation or even a single individual? Is there another explanation that works? And the last thing I'll say about, about that, just not about 37, but about resolving contradictions in this way is, that this, again, this isn't even a post-biblical process. It's a biblical process. That is, within the Bible itself, you can see later biblical authors and texts reading the Pentateuch and trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with contradictions in it. And the best example of this, and this is one that I, I love talking about because I think it's super funny, and it has to do with law, not, not narrative, but it's, it's, a, it's a great example. So in Exodus, when it comes to the laws about how you're supposed to prepare the Passover sacrifice, in Exodus it says, you have to, you have to roast it. It must be roasted in fire. You can't boil it and you can't eat it raw. Deuteronomy says, you boil it. Okay, so what am I supposed to do with the Passover? I don't know. It says both things. So when the book of Chronicles comes along, you know, 400 or so, and says, and they, they are depicting the King Josiah, who is like the great king who brings back the obedience to the law, right? And Josiah reads in the book that they have to do all these things. It's like, ah, so Josiah offers the first Passover in many, many centuries. And how does he prepare his Passover sacrifice? Chronicles tells us he boiled it in fire, according to the law, right? <laughs> Which is to say, right, like the author of Chronicles is already seeing that there's two things. And he's like, it must mean you do them together. And then he even says, right, according to the law, as if right, the interpretation is the law, which in effect it comes to be, right? So the, all of these things, uh, all the interpretations become the, the resolutions, right, the, the ways that this is now read. But again, they all start from the point of, nope, like there's something that needs resolving here. I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Baden of Yale Divinity School. When we come back, what do other scholars think about the contradictions in the Pentateuch? Do they see them as a problem as well? Stay tuned to find out. Thousands of years ago, an ancient civilization made unprecedented technological advancements. The mysteries of this civilization can be found in their writings, buried away for thousands of years. Scholars have deciphered these ancient tablets, and now you can too. Learn to Read Ancient Sumerian, an introduction for complete beginners, is your guide to reading these writings from the ancient past. Get your copy today and begin reading this long-lost language tomorrow.
So obviously, we're going to talk about some of the ways that scholars today wrestle with these contradictions and, and these doublets and those sorts of things and try to figure out how it was a, a good theory for how it came together. But would you say that this idea that there are contradictions, that there are uh, these types of problem passages that exist, is this a minority position among biblical scholars? Is this sort of a fringe thing that people think that you know Genesis 37 is problematic? Or would you say this is the consensus view? among biblical scholars? <laughs> uh, this is uh, decidedly the consensus view. And again, this is not, it's not, there are a bunch of different theories about how the Pentateuch came together, but they all involve multiple hands. I think that outside of, I mean, effectively, outside of, I think, apologetic-minded institutions, there's really no, that's not even a discussion question really, whether it is a single author or whether it's Moses or not, we're well past that. And again, we've been past that for a thousand years in some senses, but certainly, you know, since the, uh, since the enlightenment, it's effectively been, been recognized, but yes, yeah, certainly today in the academy, the multiple authorship, however that then conceived, uh, and again, and for the most part, responding still to the same problems, right? So even if I don't, I and another scholar don't agree on how the Torah came together, but the problems we're seeing in the Pentateuch right, are usually relatively similar, right? Mm. Everybody recognizes that, you know, there are two laws about what to do with the Passover sacrifice. Um, everybody recognizes, you know, if Genesis 37 is like a little bit obscure, I'm not sure it is, but like everybody recognizes the Genesis one and two, just I think are really like important one that, people fight over, like the, the people out in the world are going to know, right? I don't know of anybody in the field who says, oh, no, those are, that's one, one hand is responsible for Genesis one and two. Again, this is one of, one of the things that I, I occasionally say, right? Like if you ask anybody, just tell me the story of creation from like the beginning mm -hmm. of creation, from, from in the beginning until like the Eve eats the apple, right? Like you say, just tell me that story and everybody can do it. Everybody goes, oh, that's easy. Right. So in the beginning, there's nothing. And then there's like God makes stuff six days, one, two, three, four, five, six. And he rests on the seventh day. And like, you know, he's, you know, he's got like he creates everything, all the things. And then he rests on the seventh day. And then they're in the garden. And then God makes women from from Adam's rib. And like he names all the animals and like none of that tracks. Right. There's like a big thing. And there's like a big leap in the middle that everybody just takes because we're used to the stories being told in that order. But you can't they don't go together. Right. Things are created at different times in different orders. It's very, you know, when is when is woman created? In Genesis one, she's created simultaneously with, with man, right? Uh, and probably not just two of them, but probably many of them, right? And in Genesis two, right? We all know, right? Adam's wandering around by himself, and he gets lonely, and there's animals, and he, you know, takes a nap, and then he wakes up, and there's a lady there, right? Like that's a very very different. Uh, it's a totally different order of events. Yeah, you can do that with a whole bunch of stories, right? The flood story does that. Equally, right? You can ask anybody to tell you the story of the flood, and everybody will tell you the same story, right? Absolutely the same story, right? Uh, Noah took two of every animal, male and female. They took them to the ark to keep them alive, and then um, it rained for forty days and forty nights, and the ark landed on a mountain. And got and Moses sent out a dove, and it went like this and this, and finally it brought him like a piece of uh, like a twig, and uh, Moses came out, and there was a rainbow. At the end. But that's the universal flood story, mm -hmm. and it is like not at all what's in the Bible. 
yeah. not at all what's in the Bible. But like we just like ignore all the little things that make that the flood story particularly kind of unreadable. But even 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 more to the point, if you ask me to tell you the story of Jesus's birth or the passion, passion's even better. So it's the story of Jesus's death. They'll tell you like a neat story that is not the story of any one of the gospels, right? It's just like the like the extracted common version. That's not actually what's in the text at all. Could you briefly explain? You touched on it a little bit, but the three main hypotheses that scholars have you know have formed to explain the Pentateuch. Uh, so we're going to talk in more in depth about the documentary hypothesis, but like the fragmentary hypothesis and the supplementary or the revisional hypotheses. And if you want to talk about like there's seems to be a divide between American yeah. and European scholarship. Maybe you can talk about that briefly. Right. So I alluded to what were at one point, the, like in the end of the 19th century, uh, middle of the 19th century, right? The three main like views for what do we do with all with this information? What do we do with the problems of the Pentateuch? So one of them was like, I oh, said little bits and pieces that have been smushed together called the fragment hypothesis. And then there was the, you know, it was like one thing that with a layer and then a layer on top and it just keeps getting added to. And that's called the supplementary hypothesis. And then there's the one that I've said about, which is like independent documents that like got put together like this. And that's the documentary hypothesis. At this stage, there's still a documentary hypothesis. The other two have sort of coalesced into a single position, which in my book, I, ta- I, I, I called the European model or the European approach, mostly for lack of a better term. I don't want to sort of, I don't want to define it as just like not mine, the non-documentary, which I do sometimes, <laughs> but also Europeans not particularly fair because there are practitioners of it outside of Europe. But it's certainly fair to say that it is, it is a predominantly and, and originated in uh, Europe position. Uh, so here's the their position. And again, there is a there's a broad swath of scholars who actually hold a real wide variety of different versions of this position. The idea is this. What we have in the in the Pentateuchal text is really a collection of relatively small blocks of tradition. Right? So like stories. I'm not talking about necessarily uh, like text, but like stories. Uh, so for example, the story of the flood one little independent unit of thought. But even more so, right, when I'm looking at uh, a, a longer story, I look at the story of the patriarchs in Genesis, right, the, the ancestors, because that's like a, that's a big story. Maybe there's like a big ancestor tradition. But within that, there are, seem to be traditions about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even within the Jacob traditions, there seems to be like a whole cluster of stories about Jacob and Esau, and also a cluster of stories about Jacob and right, Laban, right? And his, right, like all his getting married stuff over in, in Aram. And there's this tradition in uh, about Jacob at Bethel, right? Jacob who goes, right, this is the scene, right? He sees the angels going up and down on the ladder or the staircase, whatever, right? That story, the notion is, right, what if we thought about this not as like, not as starting from the idea of long continuous stories, but like, what if I started from the small thing? What if I started with a story about Jacob at Bethel? And I thought, okay, so like I can understand that this story probably existed at one point, like in Bethel as a story for how come we have a temple here? Oh, I know. It's because our ancestor Jacob built it when he encountered God here, right? That would be a totally normal explanation for why a temple exists. So I've got a, te- I've got a, st- a story about my ancestor Jacob at Bethel, but I've also got some stories about Jacob like and his brother Esau. And what if I put those together? 
now I've got like a whole Jacob complex and like a, now the story about Jacob going and getting married and with his Aramean relatives. So I've got this, now I've got a whole like big complex of Jacob stories. And I'm going to combine that with the complex of stories about Abraham that some other folks have developed. And now I've got a whole like ancestral cycle there. Now I can com combine that ancestral cycle with all this big story about the Exodus and Egypt, right? With which it never had anything to do. And so what this model does is it takes this notion of these independent traditions and it says, I can even tell you like which words in the text belong to those traditions, right? So I'll take the Jacob at Bethel story and say, okay, so here's like the core story that I think was the original tale about Jacob at Bethel. But here's a part where it refers to, I was running away, he was running away from Esau. So clearly that's not original to the Jacob at Bethel story. That belongs to the Esau stuff. It's been added to connect the two stories. So I've got a core story with this little redactional element to get me into like the bigger complex. And that's kind of the idea if you just do it over and over again. You have smaller bits, right? That's kind of the remnant of the fragments. Smaller bits that are reflective of ancient traditions that have been collected into larger units. Those larger units have then been connected with other large units and overlaid with sort of theological reshapings, right? So the idea being, okay, so I've got uh, my Jacob stuff and my Abraham stuff, and I put them together, and not only do I put them together, but I'm going to put them together, and I'm going to connect them by introducing this theme of the divine promise to the patriarchs. And that's going to be the thing that links my new literary text. So now I have an ancestral cycle with a theological sort of like grounding and unifying feature. And I connect that with my Exodus story with its own unifying features. And, you know, and I, and I add something to connect those. And so it grows and that's sort of the supplementary part, right? So it's like smaller units, bigger units, combining and then layering them. And then a whole series of other stuff that gets added in uh, as, as the text moves through, through various hands. And that's the non-documentary approach and that can be simpler and it can be more complicated um but that's basically the idea one of the things that seems like is problematic is that but it seems like it's a change from saying that these were individually oral traditions that were then brought together in one source and small actual written traditions so you have like a little story right. and then another little story and another little story and oh but written down right the idea of there being traditions in the text is one that, you know, goes back to the first half of the 20th century and a scholar named Martin Notes and his predecessor, Gerhard von Rad, who, were, who came up with this idea that, like, you know, that really looks like what we have here is a independent traditions that appear in somewhat different forms. For example, right, Moses gets water out of a rock twice, right, which is a weird thing to have happen twice. But if you think, right, ah, there was a tradition like that you could ask people, right? Did Moses get water from a rock? And they'd be like, yeah, let me tell you that story. And like, they tell it slightly differently. Okay, so over time I get two sort of crystallized stories of Moses taking water from a rock and one of them ends up in one of the documentary sources and one ends up in another. So that the traditions, existence of underlying traditions is kind of assumed at this point. Uh, you know, it was uh, by everybody. I certainly, me uh, as much as anybody else. As you say, the problematic thing is to say, okay, there was a tradition of Jacob at Bethel. Which words in my Bible are that tradition, right? So that what was an oral tradition that multiple folks could have had access to or told in different ways 
is no longer a, like oral tradition the way we think about it, which is what I just said, right? Something that's passed around and something that has different versions and different variants. It becomes, it's not an oral tradition. It's just a tradition that is represented by these words in this page. And as far as I know, exists nowhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So what happens then is you are left with, okay, so I have my story of Jacob at Bethel, which in the biblical text takes up 12 verses, 13 verses. Genesis 28, 10 to 22, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, that's the Jacob at Bethel story. It takes up 13 verses. Even that, if I were to say like, okay, I've got 13 verses and that was my written text then got integrated with this other written text. What is my 13 verse written text? Well, like it's not, was it a post-it note? Was it an <laughs> index card? Like what they had, it would have been like, like on a shard of pottery, like, you know, the size of my hand. And those were used for writing stuff, but not for writing stories, mm. right? Uh, and certainly not for writing, right, as far as we know, the one version of this story. So there's a, you know, there's a material problem in trying to understand uh, sort of where these small and original stories came from. But, you know, there, I think there are, there are other difficulties with that theory that are, have nothing to do with the materiality of it. But things like, it, the big one for me is this, that what we're assuming is sort of a model of sort of consistent accumulating growth where the intention with every new layer is to reshape the whole presumably in the image of the, of the new layer right so and if i'm reading and it says i'll use the example of the flood story this is an easy one right if i'm reading the flood story and i think that the original version of the flood story said that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and then someone comes along and adds the new layer to it. And the new layer says that uh, the waters came from above and below and they lasted 150 days. Okay, so I understand that the new layer wants to tell me that it's 150 days. But when the new layer just gets added on to the previous one, I don't have a text that says 150 days. I have a text that says 40 days and 150 days and I don't know which one is right. So it's not... Right? It's not sensible to imagine that somebody with a new argument will write, will write it in as a layer of a text that they've preserved the entire original of. Because once they've done that, I don't know which one is the original and which one is the is the new layer. Which one am I supposed to be listening to? Right, it doesn't come color coded, but you'll see. Right, you'll see. You can see analyses of text where it's like, well, here's the original. It's in black, and here's the new part. It's in red, and you can see how the red part reshapes the black part. It's, yes, if it's color, if you tell someone what the colors are. But I, they didn't have that back then, and nobody knew that there were layers until we came along, right? Like, you know, 12 years ago or whatever, and said, ah, I think there's a layer. So, you know, I think, I think that notion, and again, that argument for why uh, none of the, why it couldn't have been built up that way, uh, that's an argument from the 1850s, right? Where they were first sort of figuring this stuff out, and someone's like, actually, you know, like, it could be that that was the case, but... Here's why it doesn't make sense. So we're, you know, again, this is not, it's not new argumentation. I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Baden of Yale Divinity School. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll find out what scholars in the field can all agree on when it comes to who wrote the Pentateuch. You don't want to miss it. Here at Digital Hammurabi, we believe that everyone should have access to the amazing information and discoveries that come from the ancient world. That's why we founded HAPS, Humans Against Poor Scholarship, 
a nonprofit organization that provides students of the ancient world with opportunities and funding to bring groundbreaking research directly to you. Why not consider becoming a patron so that the mysteries of the ancient past can be brought into the 21st century? See digitalhammurabi.com for more details. That's digital, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I.com. And we are back with our final segment with Dr. Joel Baden of Yale Divinity School. It was interesting to me because in some ways it, it felt like sometimes it's an unfalsifiable argument. So you were talking about in the book where if you have two pieces together and they've got to be bridged by you know this layer, that you would say, well, that that is part of the original source that shows the transition. And they said, no, 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 it can't be. It's got to be the thing that bridges them. And so it's... it's <clears throat> right. There's, there's a circular argument, right? In order for me to identify these two originally independent things, I have to, sh I have to be able to take them apart and like separate them. By se in order to separate them, I have to take out the stuff that connects them. Okay. So I've taken out the stuff that links it and I say, okay, here's my two original things. And they were brought together by adding this linking thing. But like the only way I knew they were original things is because I took the linking thing out to begin with, right? right. So this right. is a, a really, now all of biblical studies is circular and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, but there are bigger and smaller or prettier or uglier circles. And that one I think is a, is a pretty problematic uh, circular argument, right? Essentially it suggests, right? Ancient authors were, I guess, incapable of continuous, long, complex stories with, you know, where they call back to each other or they allude with internally, right? Uh, if I've got, right, if I have a text that links to other stories and like agrees with all the things in both of them, my assumption is like, that's the thing that was meant to, like it was part of the original thing and it got me from point A to point B. But again, if you start from the notion, ah, I have to find these small individual bits, then you're always gonna be having to remove stuff that, uh, that connects them. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to read Sumerian or Akkadian literary texts and think that people in the ancient world weren't capable of uh, writing complex literary compositions that refer internally to Sure, themselves. or Eumeritic, or, I mean, right. Yeah. Or, even, so, or even biblical, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's plenty of biblical stories that are relatively long um, and complex. There's parts of the David story. There's the Book of Ruth. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff out there. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, so let's talk then. Uh, again, you talked about the several times about the documentary hypothesis, and you know it's yeah. it's individual sources that have come together. Could you just take another second and sort of solidify that? Yeah. Um, and then my my third question was: uh, the documentary hypothesis seems to have always been a source of contention, sometimes for scholarly reasons, sometimes because of religious commitments. The form of the documentary hypothesis is different today, as the title of your book says, right? It's you're renewing it. Um, so from like the days of Valhausen. So could you take a few minutes after you kind of, again, flesh out a little bit more sure. specifically what the, the what it means to have different sources um, and explain some of the reasons that the older form of the documentary hypothesis was criticized and how uh, these have been addressed more recently? Yeah, of course. Okay, so as I said, right, the theory is that there are multiple sources, and I want to I want to start by saying that that's the, right, the the idea that there are four sources in the Pentateuch is not the presupposition of the, of the uh, approach, but the conclusion. Right? Nobody went into this going, 
I'm going to find four sources in here. <laughs> but like, it's not, it wasn't like that was the, the get-go. It, it came out of things like, that's weird. There's like two creation stories and there's two flood stories. And even more, the two creation stories like actually kind of match in interesting ways with the two flood stories, right? Uh, the way that the cosmos is envisioned, the, the question of where water comes from. There's all sorts of things that link uh, the two creation stories, the two flood stories. And there's um, like, if you keep, so, okay. So you find these two strands and you can follow them, right? What you're following is uh, not their style, right? not the words they're using, but the, the argument, the, the things they're saying about where people are and who they are and like how the world works. It's plot, right? It's who, what, when, where, why, and how, not the words I use to say who, what, when, where, why, and how. So again, right. The, uh, you know, the notion of, uh, uh, right, so you're, you're reading, you read Genesis 1, and you come to Genesis 2, and you go, oh, this cannot be the same thing, and then you're on, you've got two tracks, right? And everything you come to, you can say, does this connect with one or, or the other of these? And they do, all the way through, uh, up, until, up until you get to, like, Genesis 15, and then suddenly it's like, that's weird, this, like, what I'm reading now doesn't really fit with either of those. And so it turns out, but it turns out the thing I'm reading now connects with other stuff later on. Mm -hmm. And now I've got three tracks and like, it, it sounds a little complicated, but that's it, right? There's three tracks that like everything connect, everything connects with one of, for the most part, like all the way through until you get to Deuteronomy, at which point suddenly you're like, this is something completely different. And you get your, their fourth source, which is con entirely confined to Deuteronomy. But the other three are interwoven essentially from the beginning of Genesis, uh, or at least, uh, you know, the third one picks up in like Genesis 15 or so. Uh, but, you know, it's about the consistency of their claims about the plot. Who are these people? Where are these people? What are their relationships, right? Um, where are they? Who are they? What, what are they doing? Uh, who do they know? Um, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, all sorts of little things like, um, you know, when do characters die? When are characters born? It's not the same necessarily in each story. And you can see where, assumptions are made in one text that relate only back to like one and not the others of what came before or that look ahead to something that is not consistent. So again, uh, in the, you know, in Exodus and in, um, in the tabernacle material in Exodus 25 through uh, 31 and 35 through 40, right, it talks about the tent of meeting and in numbers we're told, right, like it's that tent of meeting is in the middle of the camp and it contains the tabernacle where God physically dwells and right. How does it work? God is in there and nobody can go in and God communicates to Moses. God is inside and Moses is outside. And that's how the communication works. And then you read in Exodus 33, that the tent of meeting is outside the camp. And how does, how does the communication work? Moses goes into the tent and God comes down outside the tent and they communicate that way. So it's completely opposite in all of these ways. Fine. You're reading through the stories that come after that. And there are some stories where the tent is in the center and God is inside and Moses has to be outside. And there's some stories where the tent is outside and Moses is inside and God is outside. Right. So like, it's clear that this story is connected with that description of the tent. And this story is connected with that description of the tent. And it's like not more complicated than that. Really. Mm -hmm. It gets more complicated than that. But like the, the big picture is, is that. So we end up with four sources, which are poorly named. <laughs> um, just to put it out there and you know you've put up there right? you called this j-e-d-p right which are the names of the four sources according to the documentary hypothesis the easy ones to explain are d i told, told you deuteronomy 
and P, which is for priestly, right? And that's the one that's got Genesis, the creation story in Genesis 1, but also all of Leviticus and the tabernacle stuff in Exodus and most of the laws in Numbers. Um, and that's the one that thinks that the tent is inside, right? Inside the middle of the camp, among other million things that it thinks and nobody else does. J and E are, are the other two that are mixed with P in Genesis through Numbers. And they're called J and E because uh, there was a time in scholarship when it was thought, excuse me, it was thought that the J source referred to the deity only by the name Yahweh, or in German, Yahweh, with a J. Uh, and the E source referred to God only with Elohim, right, the Hebrew word for God. Uh, that's true to a small extent in Genesis. It doesn't really work after that. They're not so good names, but in any case, they, are, they recognize that there are distinctive claims. According to the J source, everybody knew God's name from the get-go, right? Uh, already in the end of chapter four, Genesis 4, 26, uh, uh, we have uh, Enosh's uh, sacrificing in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh. Uh, and in the E source, uh, God reveals his name, Yahweh, to Moses uh, in Exodus three, right? In the famous episode at, at the bush. Um, uh, so like it is, it, there is a difference there, but like, it's not the best name, but those are your four sources, J, E, P, and D. And some of them, they agree on basic things, like right? that basic plot, Abraham, I right, creation, probably Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Exodus, wilderness, mountain, uh, you know, uh, and then like some wandering until they got, uh, to the border of the promised land that much everybody agrees on. Outside of that, nobody tells it the same way, hmm. right? And this isn't like super surprising. Again, we're talking about a, you know, a time when oral tradition would be like the way that all these things were, were mostly communicated, right? Written is, is relatively rare. And oral tradition lends itself to geographical variation and class and status variation and um, just all sorts of sociological differences that account for varieties of, um, of tellings. Uh, you know, it's not so different from, and this is an example I use all the time, uh, if you were to ask, like, uh, someone from, uh, like, New Hampshire and someone from Georgia to tell you the history of the Civil War, mm. right, you're going to get, like, the 10 basic things. Like, we're going to know that, like, it started, you know, uh, at Fort Sumter, and we're going to know that it ended, right, uh, the way that it, like, with the North winning. And I would guess like, and the battles would all basically be like enumerated in the same order, but almost everything else about how you tell that story is going to be different. And that's still true today, right? Like 150 years afterward. So, you know, when we're talking about, and, and it's and also, and it's true, right? Like, and there are facts there, but like when you're talking about like these sort of traditional stories for this culture, there's all sorts of re reason for it to be varied across the different, um, the different tellings. So the bringing together of these four different tellings into one chronologically ordered story results in weirdnesses because they don't tell things in the same order necessarily, mm. right? Again, uh, right, one story has Moses getting water from a rock like reasonably early, like before they get to Sinai. And one of them has it like after they've left Sinai. So I end up with a story in which he gets water from a rock two times, right? Uh, so that's the, you know, uh, the, the material practice of bringing these things together results in uh, a weird, mm -hmm. a weird story that is contradictory and repetitive, but 
because whoever put them together or however they put together, one of the principles seems to have been to have left them mostly whole, we can take them apart again, mm. right? Because they weren't manipulated so that they, were, they weren't flattened, right? When we read the Torah, the Pentateuch, it reads problematically, which is great for us, right? Yeah. Because it allows us to see where the seams are. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's the, that's the basics of, of how that works. Um, now, that what I just said, largely the same as it would have been 150 years ago. And you mentioned Julius Fellhausen, who was the great popularizer of this uh, uh, idea at the end of the 19th century. But what the, the advances that we have made in documentary thinking today, such that we now talk about uh, a neo-documentary hypothesis, mm -hmm. right, to differentiate us from the classical, um, there was a lot of concentration in previous scholarship on, on words and style. But you get mm -hmm. lists, right? J uses this word, and E uses right. this word, and P uses this word. And that's fine if it's a description of what you have learned from having read the sources separately. It's not so good if you use it as a way to differentiate the sources to begin with, right? So if I say, ah, only P can use this particular word for possessions, right? Then every time I find that word, if I'm not sure what the uh, what text I'm reading, I go, oh, there's the word, it must be P. But that's not particularly sensible, that's, uh, you know, that's like saying that um, because one person uses a word a lot, nobody else gets to use it. Mm -hmm. right? And that's just not how language works, right? They all spoke Hebrew, right? All of the authors knew Hebrew uh, perfectly well. Um, so we can't really use style as a way to primarily disentangle. Uh, so style, things like this, things like style or names for God or uh, genre even, right? Like we can't say, ah, oh, this person likes to have um, uh, dream sequences. Uh, okay, but like that doesn't mean nobody else can just because one does, right. you know, primarily. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do now is be very cautious about really sticking to the question of plot. Right? We're not going to let issues of style or theme get in the way, right? One author can write a story with multiple themes, right? It can be as complex as you like. Right? The, the, the principle here is, if I had a book, if I had, if I had a Pentateuch, that had, you know, a variety of themes and had diverse language and style, and you know, uh, took a, you know, had a whole bunch of genres mixed into it, and yet it was completely level in terms of its plot, and it agreed with itself totally in all those ways. We would never say that there's more than one author, right? right? It's because the plot is problematic that we say there's more than one author, and so our solutions have to be plot-based and not based on other stuff, right? You can't solve a plot problem with style. Right? Mm. They're not the same. They're not the same thing. So the the neo documentary hypothesis is very focused on uh, on plot uh, and, and very na very narrow definitions. Uh, there was a time in scholarship when it was assumed that like a story had to have been so important that everybody told it. So you would take a story. So like the plagues are a good example. When you read the plague story uh, in Exodus seven through ten eleven. Um, there's, there are problems with it. There's enough problems with it to suppose that there are two plague stories that have been interwoven there. Again, like perfectly with no, uh, like it's perfectly done. Um, uh, two stories have been interwoven, but lots of scholars for a long time said, the third source couldn't possibly not have had a plague story. So what are the things in here that I can attribute to that third source? 
he ended up with like fragments of sentences, mostly based on like wording, right? Like this other source likes to use this word. So like, maybe I'll just give it this phrase. Mm. Like, uh, that makes sense. But there's an assumption that every, the assumption that they told the same story more similarly than they do. And we don't hold that at all. I don't think there's any reason to think that everybody must have told the plague's story. The same way that there's no reason to think that everybody told the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? There's just, there's no need to assume that, right? Mm-hmm. It's our, it's, it's our uh, desire to have like our sense of the biblical text be uh, like as ancient and universal as possible. That's why we like grab onto that as a thing. But uh, you know, there's entire characters that are missing from sources, multiple sources, and there's entire episodes that are only, that we think are super important. The sacrifice of Isaac. Nobody knew about that except for the one guy who wrote it, right? Like, so um, this is another sort of unique feature of the of the neo-documentary hypothesis. Um, and the other is, again, the, the attempt to make it as simple, right, Occam's razor simple as possible, um, leads to the, at least the methodological sense that we don't want to be, right, we don't want to be multiplying entities, right? Which is Occam's, Occam's razor, right? As, as few as possible. So I don't have any reason to think that the four sources were put together over a series of multiple redactional steps, right? Like J plus E, then J and E plus P, then, right? Like I don't need it to be that way because I have no evidence for that being the case, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, all the sources are interwoven in exactly the same manner, right? J and E are not put together differently from J and P or P and D or whatever, right? They're all, in, they're all they're done the same way. Uh, I'm going to assume it was one redactional process and not multiple ones. Um, those are, I think those are some of the main novelties. Uh, again, it's, all, it's almost all about trying to get it simpler because one of the reasons that it was it was the reasons that it fell apart and was uh, sort of discounted in scholarship increasingly into the middle of the 20th century was because it, like it got a little top heavy, right? Mm. It got like every, every like words became determinative and right, there were all sorts of little bits that didn't, like it didn't make sense. How are you gonna defend an argument that says, ah, oh, yes, uh, there was a story about the plagues and these three words belong to a different source. like. How do they belong to that source, right? What did it mean? They were like floating, like those three words are floating around. There's somebody looking at the source and said, I'm going to tell you this story and this story and these three words from this one. Like it just doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. People thought maybe this is just like a, not a great way of thinking about it. And it wasn't a great way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, you know, the, the evidence that began the theory, again, like going back to the middle of the 19th century even, one of the things that I, I like to, to point out is that but my the, the big theory of my book, the big arguments in my book about how these sources are put together are the same theories that were put forward in 1853, right? By like that one guy who came, who like saw that this was the way it should work. So it's, it, it's not that this is like new, it's that we're trying to like clean up from what is an accumulation mm-hmm. of crap, like mm-hmm. that, is, that is like accreted to the theory over time. Um, and that's that's the deal. It's interesting, and I, I know we're running into the fifty-five minute mark, but maybe this is a good kind of question to to close with because I think it, it links to this. So, in spite of the disagreements among scholars, uh, Reinhard Krautz in a uh, two thousand sixteen article wrote this quote: "In all of the hypotheses, scholars are in agreement that the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the Hexateuch, Genesis through Joshua, is composed of at least three literary strata." Deuteronomy, the priestly writing, 
which consists of P and the holiness code, and the non-priestly texts in Genesis through Numbers. Everything else is up for discussion. So could you elaborate on this statement and focus maybe on what the consensus view among biblical scholars would be concerning this? Like, what is it that you would say everybody's agreeing on Genesis 1 and 2 has to be two different hands or things like that? So that yeah. any audience, people go, here's where everybody kind of comes away saying, yes, all the, the scholars' consensus sure. view is that these things are true. Sure. So Kratz is pretty much right. I mean, I would leave, I'll leave Joshua out of it uh, just because it's a complicated extra thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he's right. The priestly stuff, right? And everybody will agree. Genesis 1 is priestly. Um, uh, all of the tabernacle material is priestly. I mean, lots of, the, actually, much of what's in the, the P document is not uh, a, a problem for people, right? We mostly agree and have mostly agreed on P, 95% uh, of it for like 100 years. Um, little bits in the edges here and there. Now, how much, how late P is, how early P is, how, with, you know, how the original priestly document and whether there's later priestly stuff, um, there's all sorts of conversations about that. But the notion of major priestly stratum, uh, right, with the, all the ritual laws in Leviticus and all the tabernacle stuff in Exodus and most of numbers, all the legal stuff in numbers, 100% everybody's on board. The existence of a Deuteronomic source that comprises the majority of the book of Deuteronomy, if not all of it, everybody agrees on that too. Again, how old it is, how many layers there are, mm -hmm. how is it related to the material in Joshua through Kings? How is it related to the material in Genesis through Numbers? Eh, like these are all up for debate. But that Deuteronomy, most of it, constitutes a separate literary entity that was not written to be part of or to be next to the priestly material and vice versa. That seems pretty, pretty reasonable. When you take those two out, you're left with the non-priestly, non-Deuteronomic material. Mm -hmm. What I call mostly J and E. But at that point, you're into complete, absolute like disaster area of terms of like what people, you know, how people are thinking about this. I think there's basically two sources. Some people think there's 45 different layers, right? Like it, it's, that's where it is most complicated, admittedly, most complicated, least clear. Um, and, you know, the places where I still have problems sort of separating what's going on are always those places, right? It's never places where it has to do with P or D. But there are some places where I'm not entirely sure what's happening, and those are all places in the non-priestly. But yes, Genesis 1 is priestly, and Genesis 2 through 4 is not. And Genesis 5 is priestly. And Genesis 6, the first part is not, and then you get the flood story, which is both. And like everybody, everybody will agree on, again, once we all agree on what P is, we mostly do, we're all also going to agree on what not P is. Mm -hmm. Like, so those big blocks are now, again, are they layers? Are they sources? Were they brought together simultaneously? Were they brought together in a, in a sequence? Or is there some material that precedes the compilation of these uh, texts? Is there some that comes after, right? There's all sorts of, you know, movable parts. But again, I mean, as you asked in the beginning, right? How consensus is this? That's just, cross is correct, right? This is consensus. There are three major blocks. Um, and then, and I think we would all agree, each one of which has an extensive his, literary prehistory of how did this thing come to be, 
and many of which have post histories, right? Like once this thing was written, how is it edited? And then we all agree that after the material was all put together into the Pentateuch, roughly as we know it, stuff was added later still, right? There are parts of the Pentateuchal text that we all sort of say, this belongs to none of those three. It's like a later, a later text that's reflective of the, the, you know, some messy situation thereafter. So there's three big blocks, but untold number of hands mm. that have had their way with this. Again, which is not surprising, right? When you think about the transmission, the physical transmission of texts, right? It's got to be copied. And scribes have their hand in it. We know from, I mean, from the New Testament, from Mesopotamian literature, mm-hmm. right? It's a constant sort of updating and, and changing of little things here and there. And it's my assumption that stuff has been changed all over the place that we'll never know about because it was changed mm-hmm. silently, as it were. Well, I want to thank Dr. Joel Baden for joining us today, uh, along with all of you out in the audience. If you want to hear more from Dr. Baden, be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Joel Baden. That's B-A-D-E-N. As always, our links are in the description, or you can just visit our website, digitalhammurabi.com. That's digital, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I.com. Or our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash digitalhammurabi. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here on the He Baden Podcast.